Good morning, church. It's good to be with all of you today. Uh, it is uh, time for uh, Kids Church. So if you're uh, here and you want to head downstairs for uh, City Kids, uh, Ben Rule's here in the back, and he can uh, lead you the way. Where, where'd Finn? Finn, you still around? Did he go that way? Of course he did. He's He carves his own path, and he runs around like he owns the place. So all parents who... Oh, there he is. Hey, buddy. You got to head this way. You got to head this way. Go, go downstairs. All right. Good job. Uh, excited to be in worship today. I do want to apologize. I, uh, I spent the, the last week um, uh, with a little staycation working on my house. So if there's an email out to me and I haven't replied, I promise it's not because I don't like you. Um, I, uh, I'll get to those eventually um, uh, later this week. And, uh, but today, we get to hear again from Robert Caldwell. It's part of our series. It happens uh, every couple weeks. Uh, Robert's been uh, sharing with us uh, his teaching on racism in the church. And um, today is part two. Uh, part three and four will be coming in the future. If you're interested, you can find all that information on our website. And uh, just uh, want to say thanks to everyone who signed up for the discussion groups. We had our first discussion group last Sunday, and from what I heard, it was just a really positive experience for everyone involved. And um, I know the homework's been really meaningful as well. So with that, Robert, I invite you to come on up and uh, look forward to hearing from you today. Yeah, I'll grab this one here. Well, good morning. I, again, appreciate the um, opportunity to be with you all. This is a little unusual um, in that uh, this isn't a typically uh, church service type of training, um, per se. Um, but we have figured out a way to make it work. For those of you who are not a part of the group that has been receiving the workbooks and homeworks and, and all of that, um, I will announce sort of a, maybe I guess you call it a webinar or an opportunity that I'll put online. Uh, we'll create a Zoom call or something in a couple of weeks and it'll be open to whomever, most particularly the folks who have been involved in the, um, in the class uh, who have been participating. But for those of you who just kind of want to get a little bit more perspective, maybe get caught up, but uh, did not sign up for the class, it'll be an opportunity for you to maybe ask some questions too, because this is kind of chewy information. And if you have not done the preparation work, or if this is not a topic that you have, um, you know, maybe been having discussions about or thinking about, some of this material may land a little funny for you, perhaps make you a little defensive or uh, something like that. And so I want to try to address those things, if at all possible um, for you. So um, this is week two, and uh, I want to start with a little bit of a review. Go ahead and um, click the slides. The uh, main thing, I, I do this kind of point of view um, activity in the trainings that I do, and one of the things that I try to encourage folks to um, just continue to recognize is that you need to posture yourself as a learner always. Um, and the, nature, the current moment that we're in and all the you know, divisiveness around just about every issue, um, you know, the, the only way to counterman that is to try to hear what people are saying. Perhaps they, you know, there's not as much disagreement as we often think. But if you don't listen to understand what other people are saying, then you don't even know if you disagree with them or not. Um, don't just react. You know, ask questions. 
um, try to get some clarification, do some research on your own um, to, to see if somebody says something or uses a term or references something you're not familiar with, do some research on your own and see if you can draw some conclusions. Um, but the last thing and the most important thing I think in all this is to be patient and persistent. Um, none of these issues get addressed or fully understood with one or two hearings. You just have to dig in. Life is a learning journey. I mean, I'm 62 years old, and um, I think I've, I was surprised at how much I learned about myself in the last year or so, and the, what I've learned about life in the last year or so at age 62. And, um, you know, so I don't, I, I, I imagine I'm gonna learn a lot more as I, if I continue to live longer, so. We're all learning, we're always learning, we're always growing. I tell my kids a lot, uh, hold on to whatever it is you believe now until you don't believe it anymore. Because there are things that I believed you know, 20 years ago that I maybe even ended relationships over. And today I don't even believe those things anymore. So what would those relationships have been had I been mature enough or whatever to, to not draw lines in the sand like that? So just keep learning, keep learning and growing. Next slide. So I, I ended last time with a kind of an interesting question. Do you identify as white or are you identified as white? Uh, the discussion group and some of the homework, people got to unpack that a little bit more. And there's a few other things I'll add um, to that to, to kind of give you some more perspective. I have this sort of continuum that might help you understand that a little bit more. But the main thing I want to do in terms of review is to emphasize that it's what people do that has impact on folks, not what they intend to do or what they did. So if you, you say, I didn't intend to do that, well, that's fine, but you did it and it had impact. One of the ways I illustrate that um, for clarity's sake is I could be walking down the street and um, you're driving your car, your tie rod breaks, you get a blowout, your car swerves, jumps the curb, hits me, breaks both of my legs. Or you could hate me with malice and intent, turn your car toward the sidewalk, step on the gas, jump the curb, hit me, break both of my legs. Now, didn't matter whether you intended to do it or whether you did it on purpose. I still have two broken legs and I have perhaps a lifetime of rehab and maybe may never be able to get back to where I was before. So intent, just kind of keep that in mind, intent's not the issue. It's what actually you do that has the impact. And the way racism works in our society is that it has impact on people, whether it was intended to or not. And some of the prep work and some of the other things that um, some of the folks have interacted with kind of help unpack that. And I'm gonna try to give you a little bit more of an illustration or a little bit more things to help you understand that today. So next slide. So in the, um, the way I organize these trainings, um, I always try to answer five questions to help people kind of learn and grow. And these are five questions that people have to answer if you're going to learn or grow in any way. One of them is, what is the problem? Why is it a problem? Why is it my problem? What can I do about it? And then how do I get started? And you may not answer those in some linear fashion, but those questions have to be answered if you're actually gonna take action 
to start to change. And so today I'm going to answer or at least um, allude to two questions. Um, why is it a problem and why is it my problem? So go ahead, next slide. I'm not going to, is this video loaded, loaded by chance? I, I don't know if we loaded this one. Don't, I don't need you. It is? Okay, play, yeah, play a little bit of this one, and then Some I'll stop you. This is a loaded topic. What is or isn't racist, or who is or isn't racist, is one of the most hotly debated issues in American society. Is racism about what you believe, or is it about how you behave toward other races? What is prejudice, and why does it exist? Sociology can't make racism go away, and it can't make it any less disturbing. It probably can't even make the issue of race and racism less loaded than it already is. But it can help us understand racism, and understanding is an important start. As always, let's start by defining our terms. For one thing, what's the difference between racism, discrimination, and prejudice? Prejudice is a rigid and unfair generalization about an entire category of people. So what exactly do I mean by unfair? Well, a prejudice assumes that something you think to be true for a whole group applies to every individual member of that group, too, with little or no evidence. Prejudice often takes the form of stereotypes, or exaggerated and simplified descriptions that are applied to every person in a category. Negative stereotypes are often directed at people who are different from yourself, which means that people who are a minority in a population are more likely to be negatively stereotyped. For example, two common stereotypes of people who use government assistance are that they're A, African American, and B, gaming the system. System. But both of these ideas are demonstrably false. The majority of people on welfare are white, and people who use social services like welfare are also likely to need the extra help. But these stereotypes lead people to claim that black Americans, particularly single mothers, are lazy or untrustworthy. This example is a specific type of prejudice racial prejudice. Racism includes beliefs, thoughts, and actions based on the idea that one race is innately superior to another race. Some take this definition further and argue that racism is inherently tied up in structures of power, meaning that racism specifically refers to the belief that a race with less societal power is inferior to other races. And of course, racism can be explicit or implicit. Explicit bias refers to the attitudes or beliefs that we have about a group that we're consciously aware of. But implicit biases are a little bit more insidious. These are the unconscious biases that we have about other groups. While we might easily recognize an explicit act of racism, like calling someone a racial slur, we often don't consciously recognize how implicit biases affect how we interact with each other. For example, a 2007 study by University of Colorado social psychologist Joshua Carell and colleagues found that people's implicit bias comes into play when making judgments about how likely it is that a person is holding a gun. Participants in the study played a video game in which the goal was to shoot people who had a gun, but not shoot unarmed people. Participants were more likely to mistakenly shoot an unarmed black man than an unarmed white man. This was true whether the participants in the study were white or black, and it didn't change regardless of what explicit biases the subject said they had. What did seem to matter was if the subject said he or she was aware of stereotypes about black men and gun violence even if the subjects adamantly disagreed with those stereotypes. That said, it does seem like training can make a difference. The sample for this study contained both a sample of adult community members from Denver and a sample of police officers. The study found that police officers who are trained to recognize when someone has a gun or not were less susceptible to racial bias in who they shot than a community member was. Also, we should note that like many studies, to the next slide. So, um, so that was a little bit of an unpacking, that entire, um, episode of Sociology Crash Course is on the 
um, resource page, and you can hear the whole thing if you're a part of the group. Um, next slide. So I'm going to talk about who or what is racist, and I'll say this for the sake of, uh, I won't be able to unpack a lot of things, but part of this identity issue and the question that I posed last time I spoke is important, and, and this, we have to stop thinking of the term of racist or racism as if it's an identity issue, meaning I'm a racist, I'm not a racist, she's a racist, he's a racist, uh, or you know, I'm not a racist or whatever, because it's not about identity. And this is what I hope we can unpack a little bit um, today. Next slide. So racism, as it, the, the um, crash course illustrated, is it's about ideas, beliefs, and behaviors that one group is superior um, than another group. And that's the way it plays out in our society. And in, and in our society, um, American society, racial and ethnic minorities are the, the people who are most victimized by racism the way it plays out. And then racialization is a term, it's in the, um, some of the stuff that we've already talked about, is when those racist ideas get infused into our systems. Um, and, and again, that's one of those chewy things people want to argue about critical race theory. All that is is a, an examination of how racist ideas have been infused into the systems that we have. And if we can separate ourselves from the idea of being an identity um, issue and just sort of recognizing, the real question is how has racism affected all of us? It affects white people, black people, whoever. But, and we have to start thinking about it in that way versus identity. So go ahead, next slide. So I wanna, here's what I got for you. What are these people doing in these slides? What are they doing? You can say something out. Playing baseball. Next slide. Oh, how do you know they're playing by, there was a little glitch in the slide there. How do you know they're playing baseball? Go ahead. They're doing what? Right. Okay. And what you notice is that you've got pictures of people playing baseball that are professionals. Looks like these kids are playing baseball in some kind of pasture um, or whatever. You saw a family playing baseball in their backyard. All right, next slide. <clears throat> now, your decision or your assessment that these folks were playing baseball was because of what they were doing. You saw what they were doing, right? Do you, do you what if I were to say to you, how do you know those people really intended to play baseball? Like, was it their intention to play baseball? How do you know? You don't know what's going on inside of their heart. But when we talk about issues of race and racism, the first question, because we have defaulted to this idea that it's about identity, um, somebody says, well, that person is racist, or that person um, has, um, you know, did something that was racist. The first thing people say is, well, how do you know? That wasn't my intent. I, I didn't, I wasn't trying to be right. I, don't, I, I have plenty of friends who are white, or plenty of friends who are black, or whatever the case might be. And 
it's important for us to like sort of recognize that that's not what this is about if we're actually going to address it in any meaningful way. So it's the behavior that has the impact regardless of intent. Next slide. You can go ahead and go to the next slide. So, go ahead, keep, keep scrolling. All right, here we go. So I made this reference earlier, oh, back one, sorry. So I made this comment about con how I was connecting whiteness and racism in American society. And the, the point in that, with, with that sort of connection is that in this society, the group that has had and historically had the power in this society, the ability to do the perpetrating, if you will, has been the group of people that have been identified as white. It should be a click that gives you a little bit more. Um, there we go. So um, I don't know if you all remember um, this incident where the young woman was in the Central Park and there was a black man who was walking his dog and he made some comment that she needed to leash her dog or something because that was the rules. And then she got on the phone, called the police, said that this guy was harassing her, felt threatened and all of that. Well, there have been many incidents. This is one of the more benign ones. But there have been dozens in the last couple of years of people who were either killed, arrested, or something by police because a woman, that's where we get the whole Karen thing, um, if you will, um, that have been, you know, attacked, but because the woman said she called the police, referenced that this guy was a black guy that was harassing her or a person was doing something. And so it was her behavior. Now, she claims she's not a racist. And that was her famous statement when she was confronted. But she did something that could have caused grave harm to that guy. This one, again, was one of the more benign ones, didn't, didn't result in that for that young man. But there have been other people who we aren't aware of. I mean, I, I, get, I mean for me, I have been um, stopped by the police, handcuffed, put in the back seat of a police car, in my own driveway when I was living and working in the Wyland Park neighborhood. I've been stopped by the police, um, and it's for nothing, I mean, clearly it's just, it wasn't that I did anything, it was what somebody's perception of what I did, and a decision that someone made, and then it you know, resulted in what could have been you know, potentially really harmful for me. So I have a kind of a personal experience with that. But the point I'm making is people do things. It doesn't matter what your intent was. It really just doesn't matter. Because once, this, once it gets set in motion, the consequences can be um, completely devastating. So next slide. So for the folks that, again, have got workbooks and everything, I want you all to sort of take a moment and just um, reflect on that what is, you know, what or who is racist. And um, you're gonna get a chance to have that in your discussion group and your homework to sort of unpack that. But go ahead and just take a moment, and you all who are, um, who are not in the class, you can think about that too. Just meditate that for a second, because I really want that to settle in. It's not about identity, it's about behavior. It's not about intent, it's about behavior and how it lands.
In my um, workshops or trainings when I do this, I would typically um, ask people to just be willing to share some of their thoughts. It looks like we may have plenty of time to do that, a little bit more of that this week than versus last week. So I would like to invite the um, folks here in this uh, sanctuary to take a moment, if you like, and a couple of you just sort of, what were your reflections, reactions, thoughts, anybody who's willing to share, um, just raise your hand and um, kind of what, what were the things you thought about or what were your reflections on that? You can take a couple minutes and do that. Yes. It's um, someone who doesn't actively work against the system of the system. If you aren't doing that, then you're allowing them to or having to do that. Okay. So you're saying if, if, if you're not actively working against it, you're allowing it to continue? Is that kind of your thing? Okay, that's an interesting take, but that's one of the things, that's the direction we're going. This has always been a thing. Any change, if you're not a part of the solution, even if you're just existing. I mean, you don't have to, you're, the, the way the current is going is just drifting in a certain direction and you're either working against it or you're not. But if you're not, you're um, tacitly complicit. So that's a good thought. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, so I really like Renee Brown's work and I used to work with kids mm -hmm. and um, we would talk about, sometimes kids would say, I'm bad. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, you're not bad. You made an unhelpful choice or a helpful choice. So we would try to change their language around themselves so then their choices didn't affect their, so they could see themselves as good and so that they could change their actions. So like when I learned about this with racism, like it, I think it helps people change more because they know it's a racist choice. So I'm gonna make an anti-racist choice. I wanna try to make it and that's good language. Obviously, you've been doing some work on this because those terms racist and anti-racist are also pretty controversial now. Uh, but that's literally what we're talking about. I mean, you're either doing something tacitly or with um, full malice and intent that's racist, or you're doing something tacitly or with full intent that is anti-racist. And it's really as simple as that. And the only way to know that is when you become aware um, of what it is that you're doing. And we just don't, we, you know, until someone points it out. I mean, going back to, to scripture, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. And that gives us an opportunity to repent and change. And until you're aware, you don't know and you remain complicit. So that's good. All right, next slide. This next question is why is it my problem? And so now we're going to turn this on so to, um, you know, why this is important for you all as a congregation. Among the things that uh, Joe and I talked about um, when we started planning this was that this church has a real commitment as a part of its identity and mission to be about social justice on several fronts. And uh, so this is kind of the direction that um, you, know, you all are going and have agreed to go. And so this is, again, trying to help you all understand um, even better, you know, why is this church a predominantly white church? There's a, some historical reasons for that. So clearly there are some behavior choices that contribute to that. And then what needs to be done 
in order for the, the uh, culture of this congregation, the, the vibe of this congregation, to be really more receptive to the type of racial and ethnic diversity that you all are um, aspiring to achieve. So um, next slide. So um, this is, again, just not enough time to unpack this fully, but I want you to kind of appreciate the way um, this idea of institutionalization of race, racism or racialization of a society works. So it all goes back, I referenced the doctrine of discovery back and the last time that I talked and how that was an edict from the Pope in the 1400s. Um, those Europeans came out with a mandate to um, go out and subdue lands and peoples and they, the doctrine of discovery gave them um, this idea that they could declare their sovereignty over the land and its resources and the people in those places. And that was sort of the beginning um, of what eventually became um, whiteness or white superiority or whatever. It started off as European superiority. Well, the reason they were able to do that is because they had an advantage in technology in weaponry. I mean, that particular part of the world began to, you know, they knew how to um, do all the iron and metal working stuff. They had the capacity to do that. They had guns and other things that other folks that they encountered did not have. And as a result, they could take that power. They could coerce people um, with that power that they had the technological advantage. And they did so. So, you know, the shorthand in all this is so there's what happened. So they came to the states in pursuit of material wealth, um, and they took control of the land. They had the technological advantage over the natives. Um, they had a technological advantage over the Africans that were eventually enslaved. Um, and they began to establish our society. They began to create the institutions, um, particular socioeconomic institution that uh, we have. They've set in motion the policies and practices that became our uh, socioeconomic uh, system. And they did so, so that it leveraged and maintained their power inside of the context. But they had a technological advantage to begin with in weaponry that aided in their ability to do that. Now, if they'd have showed up and, you know, the natives had bigger guns and you know, whatever, they might have turned them away, but the natives didn't have any guns, you know, they didn't have any. And so there was no way for them to, to turn that tide. Next slide. So um, go ahead and go to the next slide. I've already kind of unpacked this issue here. But I just want you to sort of appreciate that. I want to, there's a video that kind of gives you a little bit of an illustration of this. This is um, something, uh, go ahead and get it started. It's a Michael Jackson song that they've kind of used that it's got some of these references clearly yeah. this is michael jackson's controversial song they don't really care about us it talks about racial inequality police brutality against blacks and the civil rights champion martin luther king and it's still relevant today here's how with the Civil Rights Act of 1968, legal forms of racism were abolished, but it didn't actually end racism in the US. 
It's not only about forced segregation or slurs or lynching. Professor David T. Wellman defines racism as, quote, culturally sanctioned beliefs which, regardless of intentions involved, defend the advantages whites have because of the subordinated position of racial minorities. So, let's talk about institutional racism. It's what blocks access to opportunities for people of color. Professor Trisha Rose identifies five social institutions that produce and keep racial inequalities going, either intentionally or unintentionally, through housing, education, criminal justice system, media, and wealth. Housing disparity leads to low taxes, which leads to poor schooling, which leads to low education and dropouts and blacks entering the criminal justice system. And because of the media and prejudice, they receive longer sentences and can't get jobs when they're finally released, which leads to poor communities, which leads to housing disparities, which leads to... You see the cycle there? So let's start at the top. Today, the average white family owns 700% more wealth than a black family. A study by Brandeis University found that this disparity is due to the institutionalized racism in housing. You see, for decades, the Federal Housing Authority wouldn't grant mortgage loans to people of color. They'd rank all the neighborhoods in the country according to their loan eligibility, and black neighborhoods were marked red and assigned the lowest grade. Later, this rating system was taken up by banks and other institutions which denied home and business loans to people of color. This is called redlining. And although it's now illegal, the damage is still being felt today. Blacks couldn't get loans to buy property in their neighborhoods, and white real estate owners known as blockbusters held all the deeds. Without access to loans, black neighborhoods couldn't thrive. Homes weren't renovated, new businesses weren't opened, and existing ones weren't being expanded. It's what created ghettos and generational poverty. Lower property values and the lack of prospering businesses meant that local tax collections were low. With nearly half of a school's budget coming from local taxes, education in these areas suffered. And when schools don't have enough funding, they can't open kindergartens or hire qualified teachers. So class sizes swell, and schools don't offer electives and upper AP classes. This education system not only fails students of color through inadequate resources, it also creates a school-to-jail track. Looking at statistics on suspension rates from kindergarten through high school, black kids are suspended and expelled from school far more often than white kids. Expelled students have a higher chance of being arrested or ending up in juvenile detention centers, where they're introduced into the criminal justice system, which again is skewed against people of color. The number of black convictions are much higher than white convictions for the same crimes. Black people make up only 13% of the U.S. population, but they're 40% of the U.S. prison population. Why? It's all about perception. Black people are perceived as criminals. And this stereotype of black people as brutes became especially popular in 1915 with the movie The Birth of a Nation, praising the Ku Klux Klan's protection of white women from the sexual aggressions of free black men. The movie was screened at the White House and President Woodrow Wilson reportedly said the film was, quote, like writing history with lightning and its depictions were all so terribly true. And these perceptions have carried on. Interestingly enough, the U.S. prison population skyrocketed after the Civil Rights Act, mostly caused by the U.S.'s war on drugs, which, according to former Nixon advisor, was created to target black communities and hippies. And today, even though whites and blacks use drugs, 
drugs at similar rates, people of color are far more likely to be prosecuted and receive harsher sentences for non-violent drug-related crimes. Only 13% of drug users are black, but 36% of people arrested and 46% of people convicted for drug-related offenses are people of color. At the current rate of arrests, one out of every three black males will go to jail at some point in their lives. And when they get out, they'll earn 21% less in wages than formerly incarcerated white people, which feeds into poverty, which feeds into housing, which feeds into schools, which feeds into prisons, which was fed by the media and round and round it goes. 66% of the now. overall population and You can 70 stop this one now. Okay, and go ahead and go to the next slide. So here's a graphic illustration of what you just um, heard. So one of the things that um, I referenced is that, you know, from the beginning, I used this illustration in the past, you know, the first enslaved Africans were on this continent in 1619. And then you had slavery for 246 years in America from that point forward. It um, got interrupted legally uh, by the Emancipation Proclamation, but um, and though there was a brief period of time, eight to 10 years, where they got the uh, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments passed, um, changing the Constitution, it was um, you know, right, not quite you know, 10 years after emancipation that what we know now is Jim Crow segregation. Go ahead and hit it, yeah. Jim Crow segregation actually began. So you've got, uh, go ahead and one more click, I think. Yeah, you've got 346 years of legalized discrimination, disenfranchisement based upon the color of skin. But by the same token, you've got 346 years of legalized, based upon the color of his skin, establishment of the ideas, beliefs, and behaviors that white people, people identified as white, were superior to people of color racial and ethnic minorities now in general, but black people or Africans that were enslaved in particular throughout this span of history. So it was the 64-65 Civil Rights Voting Rights Act that brought official end to Jim Crow. And like I referenced in the last time I talked, I was born in 1960, so it was legal in this country to still discriminate, disenfranchise, prevent black people from having access to housing, to quality schooling and education, to loans, you know, to buy uh, houses and things like that, that was still legal. And it didn't end in 64, 65. This whole redlining thing continues, and the effects of it continue to this day. Every neighborhood that you might um, be identified as a ghetto in this city, you know, Kerwin Institute did some work on this last few years, and they tracked all of this going back as far as they could to the policies of redlining. In every one of the neighborhoods that have been designated as ghettos, underperforming, low-income communities where primarily black and brown minorities live, where poor schools and education can be traced all the way back to those policies. And they've got you know, a, a pretty detailed um, map that kind of illustrates that. So when people, you know, why, why is it still happening? Why is it this way? Why is it still an issue? And in particular, church, why is it our issue? Is because that's part of our mandate 
as believers. Liberate the oppressed. Bring the good news. And then work to alleviate that impact. We have an opportunity, if we choose to take it, to interrupt a, a lot of this. We, we, can, we can take a stand. There are one of the things that the black church historically had as a mandate and what we saw manifested until relatively recently was I referenced earlier that black folks came to the gospel because of Exodus. You know, they could identify with the Hebrews being oppressed for 400 years. And so come because the, the God of the Bible that they got introduced to, the Jesus of Scripture that they got introduced to, was a liberator. You know, and so their mandate was, let's go do something. So the civil rights movement was led by black churches. The one you all are aware of, Martin Luther King, he was by far not the only one. And he was not the only one that was assassinated. You're probably aware of that. But that's what they did. It was the black church that led that. So that was a part of their mandate. And then this thing called the church growth movement hit in post-civil rights. Go ahead and click a slide or two. Go ahead and go through. Because I want to unpack that for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and skip. I seem, I'm looking at my time, but I want to get to the church, the racism and the church part. So click a couple more slides. If it'll... Yep, no worries. We're communicating. I want you to go ahead and skip that one, too. I'm sorry. We don't have time for that one. All right. So I, I referenced the sort of racist origins of the church. So the, 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 some of you may have heard of Richard Allen or Absalom Jones. Um, they were pastors in a United Methodist church um, in the 1700s, right around the time that the Constitution was being um, written um, in that general time frame. And they when, they, when Richard Allen began to preach at this church, he was invited to do so as a black man, black pastor. And um, one time he comes into the church, and they used to allow people to pray at the altar in the, you know, before the Sunday service starts. So Richard Allen comes in to pray at the altar. One of the things that had happened was because he was there, a lot of black people came to that church for the church services. And they had done a few things. They wanted to keep them segregated, didn't want them mixing with the balance of the congregation. So they built a balcony for those folks to sit in, uh, in that congregation, in that church building. Well, he kneeled down to pray. One of the elders of that church said, you got to get up. You can't pray down here because they didn't want black people mingling with the white people in that moment. And they forcibly removed him from the church. And at that point, all the black people left that congregation. And then a few years later, they started the first denomination, African-American Episcopal denomination. They planted their own church. And then so before the Constitution is ratified, the split between black and white church, why? because white people felt like they were superior, the people who identified as white, then black people did not want to mingle with them and caused them to say, well, we're gonna go follow God on our own. So there's the beginning of the split. And to this day, that's part of the deal, why the churches are separated by race. One of the reasons we have all of these uh, uniquely 
um, identity organized congregations. You have not you now you have black church, white church, but now you have Korean church and you have Hispanic church and you have you know all these different churches that are are, are organizing themselves around their racial or ethnic identity. But what is the picture that we're given of the church in scripture? What is the picture we're given? You know, the Bible clearly says in Jesus there is no male, female, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. And if you don't know your history, those are all the categories. They're talking about, um, you know, the, the gender category. They're talking about the socioeconomic category. They're talking about ethnicity and race as a category. And those are all the categories. And yet to this day, in, in this point in time, in American society, we've completely divided ourselves into those categories and it's not at all a picture of a unified church that has organized itself around its common allegiance to Jesus Christ. And there's a reason why, and, and I gave you an example or, or some of the, how the dots connect for why it's that way. This goes all the way back 1400s, the first folks showing up on this continent, through every policy decision, every institutional development, all the ideas and beliefs that got incorporated into the way those decisions were made, created a system, created institutions that regardless of whether people intended for them to do so, Regardless of the people who are involved in the perpetuation of those things inside of those institutions, whether they want to or not, those things are continually to perpetuate this divide, continually perpetuating the schism in the church and the oppression of predominantly racial and ethnic minorities. So that is what institutionalization or racialization or structural racism is really about. And the church, next slide. The church and its history, and the church that you all are most familiar with and what you inherited was shaped by those same things in ways that we just aren't connected to because we don't appreciate the history. So, it's in, so, so in that graphic there that I show you, the church, the modern church in America was developed through the Jim Crow era, where with intention and malice, because of the people who identified as white, believing that they were superior and did not want to intermingle in any way with racial ethnic minorities, black folks in particular, they forced this schism in the church. And so we create a black church. The denominations, the reason we have Southern Baptists and American Baptists, Southern Baptists and American Baptists, that was because of the racism issue. Most every major denomination had a schism. And you all experienced most recently, if you were paid attention to the way the Southern Baptist Church and it split, and then people making these, ah, we're anti-CRT, or we're not gonna talk about racism, we're gonna, and all that divide that's going on now, people are doubling down today on those same things, that same schism 
that started in 1700s because of the beliefs, biases and assumptions, behaviors of the superior group in our social, uh, sociological context, that group who believed they were superior, who had the power, institutionally and otherwise, you know, catalyze that and continue to sustain that. And those things are still in place today. And this church, um, and, 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 and it's not, again, it's not about identity and it's not about blame or guilt, but it's trying to make you aware that there's a reason why churches end up being predominantly one race or ethnicity. And if you're gonna wanna overcome that, if that's part of your vision for the future of this congregation, understanding that and then learning how to unpack and deconstruct that so that you can re-engineer the culture of this congregation so that it can actually be more welcoming. That's part of what we are trying to accomplish here. So next slide. Go ahead and click flip through that one too. Go ahead and go through that one. <clears throat> you can go to the next one. Go to the next one. So you saw a quick reference to the church growth movement. I, I didn't want to spend a lot of time on this one, but I will make that point. You can go ahead and click the um, slides there too. I think it's the next one, to be honest with you. Go to the next slide. I think it's the next one that I'm looking for. There it is, right there. So the church growth movement actually got established um, in the wake of civil rights. It was the early 70s that, um, and how many of you are familiar with what is known as the church growth movement? Any of you familiar with that? A few of you might be. Back in the 70s, there was an Institute for Church Growth, and one of the things that came out of that was a strategy of homogeneity for church planting. Homogeneity just simply means people like to be around people who are like them. And the idea was that as a strategy, you plant a church, you create a culture, you create an aesthetic that appealed to a particular demographic. And that was the norm. And so since the 70s, all the churches that we have um, have been influenced by that particular dynamic. And whether you set out to do that or not, you're just following church growth technique, church growth planting, all that. It was done based upon this idea that, yeah, people want to be around people who are like them, and that's okay. Didn't matter that that's not what the Bible talks about. It didn't matter that. But there was a group of people who somehow felt numeric growth or whatever was a measure of success as far as church planning is concerned. And uh, so that's what happened. And so that's where we are today. That church growth strategy, in particular the strategy of homogeneity, which inadvertently led a lot of folks to plant churches, creating aesthetics that appealed to just one group of the you know, culture, um, that became the norm. And we're going to unpack that in the next two weeks, or the two sessions, um, as we move forward. So with that, I will stop. We've got just a few minutes left. Is it enough time for a question or two? So I put a lot out there, and I, you know, I, I, I kind of felt the spirit there for a moment, and I kind of went in um, a bit. But I... Yeah, so you can, can uh, put some questions. I'll, I'll so put some you. questions up, or, and, and we'll start with the folks online, and then we'll close with a few folks 
No, nope. they're a few seconds behind, so start with people in the room. Okay, we'll start with you all. So I said a lot, there's a lot to chew on. If you're involved in the uh, class, you'll get a chance to do that in discussion over the next couple of weeks. But is anything anybody want to reference or what stood out to them to, in what I said today? Yes. No? Yes, I thought you were raising your hand. Yeah. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. So one of the things that we're going to do going forward, there are really four values, four cultural values that I think are at the root of way these things play out. And so we're going to unpack those um, in the coming weeks. And then there are some alternative values that if you were governed or made decisions through a lens that was shaped by those alternative values, you would begin to do things that would change the culture. But right now, there are four values that are likely governing how you all made your decisions about how to be a church that are at the root of what we're talking about. So that's the main thing. You got to go to the root. It's not going to be, you know, aesthetic things. It's not going to be music. It's not going to be, you know, how you market or package things on an external level. It's going to be what's going on at the basis of your decision making at the core values level that needs to change. And then it will result in culture change that will be more appealing. Anybody else got something? How do you not get discouraged? That guy who died on the cross, you know, a couple thousand years ago, and that Holy Spirit that um, was made available to us as a result of that, that's how you not get discouraged. You know, that's, that's how you not get discouraged. You realize that this is a part of the work that he set in motion uh, back then. And I'm in the game over 30 years. I have cried and been hurt and been stopped by the police and have lost jobs and you name it. I've had those encounters, but because I have that um, conviction, that Holy Spirit and that you know, belief that this is something that God wants to do. And I've said this to Joe and other young leaders that I get a chance to work with. I think this is a moment. This is one of those tipping point moments in our society. This is one of those times where we could actually affect change in our society uh, from a sociological standpoint. And some of my study gives me some perspective on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh, Heather online wants to know if this is predominantly an American trend or is the segregation also prevalent in UK and other countries where you've seen, well, yeah. I'm not adding to the question, yeah. but we, we talked about colonization all sure. Over the world. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. In places where, because Europe didn't just colonize this continent, it colonized a lot of places around the world. And that dynamic is set in motion in a lot of places around the world. I particularly, because I've never been anywhere else, I've never lived anywhere else, I try to limit my opinions and assessments to what's going on here on this continent and this country in particular. Uh, but you can make a case that that idea of white superiority or European superiority has had an influence on the globe. Okay. Well, God bless you all. Um, again, those of you who are part of the class, you can expect a few things. I already put some stuff in the resource page uh, in Planning Center, and um, I will add a couple more things this week. And then look for um, a notification about the sort of webinar that I'll make available to anyone sometime. It'll probably not be this coming week, but the following week 
that I'll post that and anybody who's available is welcome to uh, join that. All right. Let's thank Robert for sharing again. Really appreciate it. Um, really good stuff. You know, um, I, I want to just say, as he said, as well, it's a little unusual uh, worship experience. Um, uh, this is the type of thing that's typically done in a workshop setting. But we decided um, that, uh, you know, especially a couple of reasons. One, with the life the way it is and COVID and everything and the ability to live stream, like just people, you don't have time to come on a Tuesday night for this. Um, that's my experience. But secondly, this is worship for us. And um, why why organize a whole other event when we already gather on Sundays every uh, every week anyway? So Robert will be back with us, I believe, on the 20th for part three. So be sure to mark your calendars. And for the discussion groups, if you didn't find your own discussion time, um, we'll be discussing after church on the uh, 13th, uh, the week before that. Um, and there's homework to do in between those times. One other final note for uh, just to let you all know is the vast majority of my training from undergrad and then parts of seminary, and some, some seminary was a little bit more complicated than that, was in the church growth model. And when we planted a church, there, we're... They literally, we, we, our denomination, myself, intentionally, training I go to, takes like my personality demographics and tries to match it with the demographics of a neighborhood. Like this is like multiple, like time is spent thinking about this. And, you know, one of the dots that needs to connect for me, and I'm still unpacking myself is this is this is how this is how I was trained to do church you know and numbers mattered and all this sort of stuff and I'm slowly unpacking that I know me and Ryan have talked about this a lot because he's been in ministry longer than me and influenced by this but there's a lot of conversation around the homogeneity principle where it's like connect with people who are similar to you and my whole pitch was built around that like here's my experience here's how we'll connect with people and the reality is is I, I get, have a lot in common with a lot of people in our community because of that and we get along great and it's it's a lot of fun but obviously it's not the church it's social club at that point so there's still a lot of work that i need to do and then a lot of work that we all need to do um but one of the things that's connecting for me is that those dots like this is just another expression of intentional segregation um regardless of intent right and that's really important like no one had ill intent when they taught me this it was all good christian people uh teaching me this but regardless of intent is just another form of 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 the problem so i'm gonna leave you with that i i send you with a blessing thanks so much for being a part of this conversation um uh so excited for when you come back next week we'll continue in our mini gifts series uh where we look at the fruits uh fruits of the spirit and gifts of the spirit and uh look forward to uh spending some time with you next week in the meantime have a great week we'll see you then